Would you allow me to pray? Lord Jesus, we are in desperate need of you as we are every week. Holy Spirit, unpack for us the words that you've given us for life, for, God, for a godly life in a, a world of chaos. Lord, we, we pray for the Ukraine, uh, refugees, Yemen, all, all the places that where chaos breaks out and people choose to choose a worldview that denies both your existence and uh, the wisdom that you have as our creator. Lord, things don't work when we don't go according to your plan and your design. And uh, Lord, help us. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a theological high wire act to, today to try to get through this complex portion of scripture, but you and your infinite wisdom and grace and love and compassion can do this, do that for us right here at Church of the Red Door, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> you know, we live in a day, we live in a day where mockery seems to be the kind of the, just the normal, the normal thing, right? Uh, people get used to it, uh, they're comfortable in their, their view of our ridiculous mytholo mythological faith, and some would say they're emboldened to now speak publicly about it, and in fact, praised for it. And yet there is a dire warning that Jesus gave us as we looked last week into his disciples, specifically in Luke chapter 12, in the midst of a number of warnings. If you'll remember, he warned first, and we looked at this last week, against the leaven of the Pharisees, which he was very clear was hypocrisy. He warned us against fearing what other people would say. Well, one day it'll all come out. He, he warned us on a number of places. Uh, he warned us to make sure that our confession is, hey, we're Jesus people. And in some ways, not confessing was in some ways a denial. Many of you gave me some feedback and said that was very impactful for you. You needed to hear that. Uh, it is liberating. Why? It is li it's for you. It's not because Jesus has a huge ego and needs to be told by everybody that you're his follower. It's for you. It sets the course of your life and it will lead to peace because Jesus offered his peace as you follow him. To confess him is to train your own mind and the people around you, if you'll remember, that you are a Jesus person, and then you will begin to try to live into the very vision given to you by your own mouth. Confession is important. Well, and then somewhere between worldliness and the spirit and what we'll see next week, the, the warning against worldliness, between all that, he inserts this one verse, Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, and listen to what he says. It's people have struggled with this. It's terrified some people. Uh, it's boggled the minds of others, and it is challenging. But Luke chapter 12, verse 10, we're just going to pick this one verse out, and we're going to rock and roll. Everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, well, that'll be forgiven him. But if, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. The unpardonable sin. What is it? When have you just gone too far? You say, we shouldn't be saying this, you know. I mean, <laughs> Jesus said it. I mean, I'm just repeating what he said. Now we're going to try to say, what in the world could this possibly mean? Blasphemy seems like such an archaic term, doesn't it? I mean, blasphemy. I mean, blaspheme. You picture some puritanical kind of person from centuries ago standing up and pointing at a, at, a, at a crowd who was terrified and didn't, weren't a scientific crowd and all this other kind of thing, and people just think it's so absurd. 
blasphemy. What would the crowd that Jesus would have been running with, how would they have perceived this blasphemy? What, have the, what, would, what would have been their frame of reference? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. Their scriptures at the time of Jesus, the only scriptures they had, the New Testament obviously hadn't been written. What does it say? We'll pick up a few things. Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. The person who does anything defiantly, defiantly. So remember that. There's a certain attitude of defiance that goes on here. Whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from the people because he has, now, number two, he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken the command. That that person should be completely cut off and his guilt will be upon him. Now, we have a couple things. We have a certain spirit of defiance, uh, a despising of the word, the Bible. A lot of people are like, I'm a very spiritual person. They may even go to church, but we don't read the Bible. We're not really into it. We just don't really believe it that much. I don't know how that's con con that constitutes a church. It certainly doesn't in the, in the terms that Jesus would have laid it down, but many of our churches aren't even preaching from the Bible, don't even believe in the full authority of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture, that it's um, the divinely inspired and uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I think that gets right back to where that's a blasphemous statement. I, it really is. Leviticus, if we go back to the Levitical law, listen to what it says. And they give, a, give an example. The son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. I had just a, kind of a run-in. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. Has anybody ever done that? I mean, I find it fascinating that we talk about blasphemy and uh, in this context of a legal term, and people I hear all the time, you know, people use God, and then they use a string of curse words after that. And then some people, when they hit a terrible shot on the golf course, they say, Jesus is the Messiah. Well, actually, it says Jesus Christ, which is the same thing, but for some reason, and that may be considered blasphemy, but Jesus says, no, that's, uh, you know, you can speak against the Son of Man, but there's something when you've gone too far, you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I have never in my entire life ever heard of somebody say, the Holy Spirit is just, or Holy Spirit, hit a bad shot and say, Holy Spirit. I just never hear that. What does it mean? What does it mean to blaspheme? The very definition of blasphemy, what even is it? Well, it's, it's like a vilification of the divine name is what it is. It's, a, it's repro to reproach, to slander, to detract from the holiness of God. That's kind of what this, where this word derives its, its meaning. It's, it's, it's etymologically, it's this picture of, well, you do not realize how holy he is, and I, it, you just got to understand you cannot speak against something you can't possibly understand and bring it down into the just work-a-day world and use it in an unsacred way. That's really blasphemy. Unpardonable, Holy Spirit. I, 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 I know you may be saying, I don't understand this. Well, that's where she is, and this is the law. The law states, and you say, well, this is why I don't read the Bible, because listen to what happens to her. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was uh, Shilomith and the daughter of Debrai the, from the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses because he has such a huge ego. Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, if anyone curses God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord, blaspheming the name of the Lord. Well, the Lord will put him to death, and the congregation will certainly 
stonim, and the alien as well as the native, he who blasphemes the name will be put to death. See, when they, when they were talking about blasphemy, when either the Pharisees accusing Jesus of blasphemy or Jesus talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, contextually, this would have been flowing through the, the average Jewish man and woman's mind. This would have been flowing through, blaspheming the name. I can't do that. In fact, to this day, many Orthodox Jews won't even, won't even say the name of God or even write it out because they're concerned about blaspheming the name. You need to understand, I'll tell you right now, I do not in any way believe that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is just putting and stringing together a few words that uh, will indict you in some way. Like you're walking along and then all of you have a, like Tourette's or something and Holy Spirit something and then boom, you're forever separated from your loving creator. Listen to what Blomberg says. Greg Blomberg, listeners steeped in the Old Testament would call to mind the laws that labeled particularly defiant sin as blasphemy and seemingly unforgivable like stoning, right? The flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and his commands. Now, notice Blomberg's connection here between sinning and, and defiantly and blaspheming. The implication is, now catch this, this is very important for you because it'll release you some, if you're reading this to go, what does this mean? The implication is that one who has committed the unforgivable sin is not accidentally saying some particular set of words, but is willfully rejecting the Lord. Notice furthermore, as we looked at Numbers 15, that they've despised the word of the Lord. What's at issue is not some words just passing over someone's lips, but a more fundamental posture, despising, remember, despising what God has revealed. Well, we really can't understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if it's not just some words that are just, you know, all of a sudden fall across your lips and now you've committed the unpardonable sin. We're going to ask the question this morning, when does that happen? It's not just if it happens, it's when it happens. When, is, when have you gone too far? When does that occur? Well, first of all, we're going to need to understand a little bit about the Holy Spirit. You'll remember in John chapter 16 that Jesus very specifically said, it's better that I go away. Well, let's read it. John 16, verse 5. Now, don't miss this. I'm going to go to him who sent me, and none of you who asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus said, I'm going, and you can't come with me. He said, but I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I'm not here anymore. Why? Because I'm going to send the helper and he's going to come to you and I will send him to you. This is the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to do three things. He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? How so? Well, this is what he says. Now catch this. And when he comes... Concerning sin, because, well, they don't believe in me. And concerning righteousness, well, because I go to the Father and you don't see me anymore. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, I'm going to explain what I believe that to mean. I have many more things to say to you, but you just can't bear them. But when the spirit of truth comes, well, he's going to guide you into all truth. So, again, what are you picking up? So, the Holy Spirit is there and the Holy Spirit is going to be sent and he's going to become the voice in your mind. Don't think of the Holy Spirit just being out there somewhere. A lot of people get very concerned when they have a, maybe a child, children or grandchildren or friends or 
whoever, even a spouse who just never quite gets it, you do realize that you have an ally in the Holy Spirit and that ally is in their head. Maybe, again, they're lying in bed at night or they're uh, at the Trader Joe's or they're somewhere and all of a sudden they just have these recurring thoughts. And these are the recurring thoughts that the Spirit is responsible for. First of all, why, what is it about, you know, I'm going to, he's going to convict them of sin. What does that mean? You're a sinner. You know, deep down, I think most people, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, recognize their deficit. They can argue against it. They can talk against it. They can displace God. They can say, I don't want anything to do with God. But deep down, they're like, I got some problems here. And righteousness, because Jesus is the standard, said, because I go away. Deep down, that voice is saying, when you look at Jesus, something really pure something really right. This guy stands for good. This guy, this guy not only stands for good, he was good. When I hear his teachings, something tingles on the inside of me. I just, I don't know what it is and I can deny it and I can, I can mock it. I can, I'm, well, I won't mock him, but I'll mock Christians. But something deep down in me tells me that he is something extraordinary. Well, like, like no other human being has ever been. Even your most ardent, ardent atheist, somehow the Spirit is working on that heart. And then lastly, we just know, somehow we know. I'm, I'm just telling you, why do people who reject God completely even think about philanthropy and this and that? Because I'm telling you, in the deep recesses of their mind, they know because of the work of the Holy Spirit that somehow if there's something out there, they want to be on the side of good. They treat people a little better. They act a little better. Now, some go and they just, they fall off the cliff and they, they refuse and they reject it all. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I had a friend I was with actually yesterday and he said that he was telling the story. He's a country club kind of character, and he was out. He said, I have some guests coming in. I need to go ahead and make it, you know. I found that, you know, some of you, I, okay, they have a little basket there, and there's some nice things and some water and some, like, maybe an extra toothbrush if you forgot that or, you know, or a sleeve of golf balls or some, you know, some nuts to eat in the middle of the night if you're too hungry. And they make these little, and so I, I'm just, I, I found it really funny. This guy says, hey, I'm going, I went to Walmart to start doing this, and so he's, I don't think, I don't know if he'd ever been to a Walmart, pushing his little thing, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he hears, he says, like, what in the world is going on? He says, what's going on? Everyone leave the building, please. Everyone exit the building immediately. And of course, the first thing he's thinking, he said, there must be a shooter, an active shooter. What's going on? He's looking around. He's asking, people are asking, and then some guy said, there's a fire. There's a fire. Of course, he can't smell anything. He can't see any smoke. And he goes, well, I don't know what to do. So he left his basket and he went outside. He really didn't say anything. He got in his car and he started to pull away. And he looked back and he saw flames coming up from the wall. I don't know which one it was. It was not the one right here in La Quinta, but it was flames were coming up. Smoke was coming. He took a picture and he showed it to me right on like, you know, right there where we were. He goes, look at this picture. I can't believe it. I looked on the news. I didn't see anything. Let me just tell you something. These are, what is blasphemy the Holy Spirit? These things are going off. These are danger signs. When, when you say, I'm not a sinner, you kidding me? I'm not a sinner. That's the stupidest thing. I don't, even, I, don't even, I don't even use that kind of language. But listen to 1 John chapter 3 and verses 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, 
we're deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him what? A liar. And his word is not in us. We see two things. We make God a liar. Now, how does God reveal sin to us? Through the Holy Spirit. So what we're doing is that we're saying the Holy Spirit's a liar. That voice in my head is a lie. And a second part, and his word's not in us. Why? Because they despise the word. Same thing we saw for blasphemy. The very legal context of blasphemy is just they despised his word. And then secondly, second warning sign, second warning sign. You know that deep down that Jesus, somehow Jesus, there's something beautiful. The Holy Spirit's work. In fact, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will glorify me. That means lift him up so we can see him as he is, his perfection, his ser- he's a servant and yet he's the creator of the universe, all power and authority, and yet perfect and pure and just love, the very essence of love. God is love. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you've seen me, you've seen true love. And yet, I don't believe it. I don't believe Jesus is the standard. I don't, certainly not my standard. Warning sign number two, the Spirit is trying to be that voice in your head that says, yeah, it's Jesus. See, this is what exactly what happened to the very first martyr in Christian history. It was Stephen. He had just said that Jesus was the righteous one, and their response to it was not positive. It was blasphemous. Jesus, the righteous one. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with him, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So who's speaking through Stephen's mouth? The Holy Spirit. See, that's the, that's the second part of what we get in Luke 12. You confess, and by the way, don't worry about what you're going to say because the spirit will speak through you. So what does it mean to blaspheme the spirit? Well, look what they did. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. The spirit was speaking through Stephen. We just learned that from the previous verse. And yet they were saying this man is a blasphemer. What they were saying is that Stephen was blasphemer. The Holy Spirit was speaking through Stephen. The spirit was a liar and the spirit was a blasphemer. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, a little bit later, he makes it more clear in Acts chapter 7 at the end of his, at the end of his really a sermon of, of which he would be stoned for. Here's what he said to con- kind of conclude it if you're trying to make friends and influence people. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And you're doing just as your fathers did. So Stephen framed it beautifully. You're not resisting Me, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is speaking through me, and you are resisting it and resisting it and resisting it and resisting it. Who's blaspheming now? Or maybe lastly, judgment? (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, you know, ooh, you know, devils running around and fire and lakes and everything. Are you guys giving me pitchfork? (laughs) 
comics have been mocking this, taking the Dante's Inferno kind of a picture of hell and everything else, rather than just saying this is utter and complete bleakness and hopelessness because you are separated from the very creator of your soul, but this is what you've always wanted, and they just make a mockery. People dress up as devils. They talk about devils. They make jokes about devils. You can hardly open a newspaper. Well, nobody opens a newspaper anymore, but in the days when we had newspapers, you could open it up, and there would always be some kind of devil in some kind of cave with some kind of fire and making some kind of joke. Judgment? (laughs) Give me a break. What else are you going to believe? The work of the Holy Spirit is to tell us in our minds, it's that voice in our minds that's going, you know, you're going to give an account for the way you're living. You will give an account for the way you're living. You will give an account for the way you're living. And yet we suppress it and we push it away. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and as a result of hearing that message, has insulted the Spirit of grace, the very Spirit itself, himself, the Holy Spirit. You say, well, this doesn't sound too good. I'm sure glad I got up, you know, came to church at the red door and are watching here. I, this is pretty hopeless, and it's not hopeless at all, and I'm going to show you how that's the case. Look, we have to get beyond the root of this blasphemous, legal kind of thing. Let me tell you what blasphemy is. These are my words. It's just a settled disposition of defiant irreverence. This is my, this is my, my language. A settled disposition of defiant irreverence. You become the mocker. You become the opponent of God. If the work of the spirits to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, wouldn't resisting that work then be blasphemy? That's what I'm asking. It's not just a one-time ordeal. It's not just a few words that fly out of your mouth and you go, ah, I'll take that back. I take that back. Unpardonable. No, it's a settled disposition. Has Putin committed the unpardonable sin? How about you? Are you at the end of your road? Have you gone too far? Is it over? Let's do a couple of case studies. Bob Thompson, my friend, who was up here a minute ago, we were, the other day we were together, we were praying, he was talking a little bit, and unbeknownst to what I was going to preach on or anything, somehow it just came across a, a guy at his club. And there was a guy at his club, was one of the founders of his very club, and uh, he, he said, the, de- the very day I saw him, this was back in the 70s, the very first day I saw him, I saw him, I go, that's a slickster right there. He just knew, he said, intuitively, I knew he was a womanizer. The way he dressed, the way he acted, the way he carried himself, the way he spoke, he said, I just knew he was a womanizer. Well, as I got to know him more, I played some golf with him. I actually liked him, but he was a gambling fool. He was always going off to Vegas. He had a business that allowed him to kind of go here and go there and still kind of be, and the business still kind of churned the money for him and had some good employees there. And he was in a nice place. His name was Frank, and Frank just, uh, oh, yeah, he'd go off. He, he loved to gamble in Vegas. He loved to play for big stakes in golf. He loved to womanize and drink and do everything else, and he had a sweet little wife who was at home praying for him. And then she died. He reassessed his life. Had he committed the unpardonable sin? It looked like it for years, even decades And then at age 88, he gave his life to Christ. 88. 
What did he admit? He just agreed with the Spirit. He, I refuse to blaspheme the Spirit. I am a sinner. Jesus is the standard. There will be a judgment. And without Christ, I don't stand a chance. And Frank became a solid believer, according to Bob, and died in his 90s, lived another six, seven years, and really lived his life out for Christ, lived, lived as if that Spirit's message was actually true. Case study number one. Case study number two, a guy named Saul, not King Saul, a guy named Saul who would become Paul. Listen to what Paul said out of his own mouth. Had he committed the unpardonable sin? Well, let's see. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Even though Paul said, I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, you got to realize they, he was the one that was accusing Jesus of being a blasphemer, accusing the people, trying to round up the people on the, all Jews in the diaspora who were hated Jesus, loved Jesus and were following. He was accusing them and th having them thrown in prison and casting votes and against them. And now he's saying he's a blasphemer. He was, they're blaspheming, they're blaspheming. And then something happens and he goes, I'm the blasphemer. And a persecutor. Of what? The church. The Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Not only that, I was a violent aggressor. And yet, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance, unbelief. He wasn't done there. When he was standing before King Agrippa giving an account of this person, Jesus, now a confessor, no longer a blasphemer. Listen to what he says in verse 11. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, talking about his former life of Nazareth. And this is just what I did when I was in Jerusalem. Not only did I look up many of the saints in prisons, lock up, excuse me, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. As I punished them often in the synagogues and I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. And the question is, that sounds like the unpardonable sin. If there ever have been killing people believing in Jesus, that's not, that can't be good. And yet, evidently not because he went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. When is the when? When does it happen? You might say, well, well, Paul actually didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He, he had admitted his being hostile to the name of Jesus, but obviously he hadn't hit the end of the road. Something had happened. Now, why was Jesus, why had he had indicted? In Matthew chapter 12, and I'm not going to read it all for as a function of time, but you remember we went through this. They were accusing Jesus of having cast out the demon by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus goes on and says, look, you can say anything you want against me, but if you say something against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Again, another, the context and when they find, some people think that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just somehow accusing Jesus of something with a power that is of Satan, and it's only that. I, I think it's much broader than that. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, folks, to make this very clear, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is just a complete renunciation of the voice that's inside your head. In fact, it's, a, it, it's, to, it's to vilify the voice in your head. That voice in my head that says, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and Jesus is you know, perfect and pure, and that there will be judgment someday. Ah, I don't believe in any of that. How absurd. 
And it's a continued, continued vilification of the voice that goes on your head. See, that was planted in me when I was young. I used to have to go to Catholic school, or I used to have to do this, or I used to have to do that, or I saw it, or I went to something, or it's just our culture. If we could just get rid of this people in this culture, then we could all live free and not have to live under these parameters of, you know, judgment and sinners and really? See, Jesus, the leaders of Jesus knew, they had a very unique and amazing historical vantage point, didn't they? They knew what the prophet said and Jesus was doing all these miracles and, well, they saw the works and yet they still accused him of working in the name of the devil himself, and Jesus then brought up that blasphemy. See, what Jesus was saying is that the Spirit is, that voice in your head is saying this is true, but you're denying it and you're blaspheming that voice. See, the Spirit, we don't see the Spirit. What is it? The Spirit manifests himself as a voice in our heads. That's what that is. And when I blaspheme it and I dampen it and I just run from it and I, and I even despise it and I mock it, I think we're getting, well, we're starting, exit the store, fire, exit the store, fire. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I hadn't planned on doing this, but I got up this morning, and as is the case, I got up first thing this morning, and I just had all kinds of thoughts running through my mind. I was, I really do believe that the Spirit gives me some thoughts and some scriptures in my mind as I, I, I was just, it was about four o'clock doing old, you know, man kind of things four o'clock in the morning, and I'm just thinking, you know, there are two very difficult passages in the Scripture. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that God sends a deluding influence over people where they can't, they continue to believe a lie. Now, again, let me read this, okay? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, new verses I added just, just, a, just a few hours ago. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth through the Spirit to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, and they will believe what is false. What do you mean God sends a deluding influence? How is that fair? He sends a deluding influence? Who can fight against God? A deluding influence? What chance do you have? In order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That scene, when I first read that as a new believer, I went, how unfair God sending the deluding influence, how does that even work? Well, he answers it a little bit more in Romans 9. And this is very important. And this is what I told you a minute ago and prayed for. I know this is kind of a theological high wire act right now. And some of you are going, I'm not following it completely. I'm not understanding where he's going with this. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a very strong statement. I do believe that there is a point and only God knows that point that you resist the Spirit to the point where God now sends a hardening on you and He uses you in His cosmic plans, but not as a proponent, but as an opponent. You know, God carries out plans through vessels that are prepared for destruction. And see, the problem with that is we have a chronological sense of judgment justice as we should. God is not subject to time and space. He looks down. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows before you were even born that you, you're going to choose to reject him. And at some point, at some point, he may labor with you and labor with you and labor with you and send the spirit. But at some point, you just resist the spirit and God 
then hardens your heart or sends a deluding influence. I cannot make sense of these scriptures without it. Paul touches on this in Romans 9 as it relates to the Pharaoh because it said God hardened the Pharaoh's heart and used that for good. Why? I refuse. Well, who was it? Yule Brenner? I will not let your people go. And Moses, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go. I will not let your people go. And he hardened his heart. And what happened? Well, all the plagues came, and who was glorified through it? Each of these plagues showed that God was triumphant over all their blood gods and Nile gods and cattle gods and sun gods and everything else. God was glorified through Pharaoh as an opponent, and he hardened his heart. Paul addresses this in Romans 9. Listen, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He said, that's not in the Bible. It is right here, verse 18. God hardens hearts. He sends deluding influences. We asked the question earlier, when do we cross that line? Only God knows, but I'm telling you, when he hardens your heart, you're in a bad place. He goes on and says, well, you'll say to me then, who finds fault? Who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make, catch this, from the same uh, lump, one vessel for honorable use? There's Billy Graham. And then another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? How do you know that the Holy Spirit wasn't working on the heart of Pharaoh for years? You're a sinner, Pharaoh. I know you think of yourself as a God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, he may not even have understood that, but just whatever that spirit would have revealed, how do you know? But he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy and which he had prepared beforehand for glory. That's you if you're not a blasphemer, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you recognize that you're a sinner, if you recognize, if you recognize that Jesus is the standard and you know there's accountability and you cannot stand alone, not because of your religion, not because of whatever it is, whatever flavor, whatever denomination, whatever you may think. Well, I'm a Catholic or I'm a this or I'm a that or I'm a whatever, Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Mormon or whatever, and you stand and, you know, I'm standing on my tradition. Let me tell you something. You don't want to stand. You want to stand with your friend, Jesus. Is it not terrifying to you that think that there may be a point at which you resist the Holy Spirit, that you've moved into the unpardonable area of blasphemy, and then God turns and hardens your heart? You know, you see that sometimes in people. I don't judge anybody. I don't know. I might have said that about Saul before he would have become Paul, or I might say that about whoever, and then God may do something glorious and turn their heart, and they may have a road to Damascus, Damascus experience, but I will tell you, folks, I will tell you with all, sometimes you see an impenetrable barrier, and I sometimes wonder, I wonder if they have committed the unpardonable sin, resisted the Spirit, and resisted the Spirit, and now God's just hardened their heart, and he's actually using them to advance his kingdom but not as a proponent, as an opponent. Them's fighting words. I know those are tough. So let me answer the question. When do you know that you haven't gone too far, that you haven't committed 
Here's a few ways. If you want to know, maybe you're watching on television, maybe you're Maybe you're just lying there in bed with somebody you don't even know who they are. You met them at some club last night. Or maybe who knows where you may be watching or how you may be getting this. But you're asking the question, I wonder if I've committed the unpardonable sin. Here are indications that there is no way you've committed the unpardonable sin. Number one, you feel guilt and remorse. You feel you, feel you want to get right with God. You recognize somehow Jesus and his life and his teaching is so pure and you... All of a sudden, you're acquiescing with that voice. Rather than rejecting it, you're accepting it. And I'll tell you this, there's no better way to know than when you say, I choose to follow Jesus today. So let me ask you another question. What about believers? Can you commit the unpardonable sin with the Spirit on in you? I don't believe so. I believe in the security of the believers. I believe that Jesus loses nothing that the Father has given him. But you can do these two things. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, and occasion I do. Sometimes I, lupeo is what grieve means here, and I, I know I make the Spirit sorrowful sometimes, and I make him uneasy, and I may even cause heaviness in the Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do I do that? Well, when I, I'm bitter or... I'm angry or clamor or slander somebody or, and I'm not kind to one another and I'm not tenderhearted and I don't forgive others and just as like Jesus, just like God forgave me in Jesus, that does do one thing, it grieves the Holy Spirit, but that is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He was writing to the church. Or when I quench the Holy Spirit, when I kind of put out the fire, I extinguish it, I suppress it, something, this work of the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Sometimes I quench the spirit. I don't, I, I don't want to. It's, my, it's the goal of my life not to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. But I know through my actions that on occasion I do. That is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is not an unpardonable sin. Asking him to forgive you when you act in a bitter way or you slander somebody behind their back. Here's my close. Second Chronicles chapter 36. I know this was a little intense. I know this was a little long. But this is a hard thing. You cannot just throw it out to me. If you, if you want to understand it and you want to feel secure, and maybe even today you say, you know, I've been resisting it. My, my wife's a believer. My husband's a believer. But I've just been kind of playing games with this. I haven't really taken this seriously. The Spirit's been working on me a long time. Somehow in the back of my heart, I, I, I hear, right as you're, right as you're saying these words. Don't be like Israel. You know, Israel's story was our story in some ways. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15, the Lord, the God of our ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again and again and again, and yet he had pity on his people and his dwelling place, but they mocked the God's messengers. Here it is. They despised his words, and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and then some of those terrifying words in all the Bible, there was no remedy. See, I don't want anybody hearing, in the hearing of my voice, to get to a place where God looks down and said, there's no remedy. I've persuaded, I've cajoled through the Spirit, I have worked and worked and worked in their lives, and they just won't take the step. 
It's never too late, though. It's never too late. Paul, my last quote will be, again, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now catch this. It's a trustworthy statement, and it deserves your full acceptance. Catch this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you see how he went from the blasphemers, the blasphemers, and throwing them, and all of a sudden his whole life changed when he says, among whom I am the foremost of all. This is the great apostle Paul, two-thirds of the New Testament. He says, I'm the foremost of sinners. You think he got number one right? I think he did. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I am the ultimate, I am it, man. I am the ultimate test. You want to know? You want a case study? Look at my life. A violent aggressor, throwing Jews called away in prison, calling Jesus a blasphemer. I was there holding the very cloak of Stephen as he was being stoned. I'm the worst. And yet I didn't go too far. That's astonishing to me. It was astonishing to him. But it demonstrates the mercy of God. So, on a lighter note, no, uh, what do you, how do you respond to this? Look, folks, uh, maybe you're watching or you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. I just can't deny what is so true. I'm not vilifying that voice in my head anymore. Pray this. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Foremost of all, I've belittled you with my life. I've re- I've rejected opportunities to confess you before men. I just run for you. I I, I want to be the king of my own kingdom. But today, it stops. You're the standard. When I look at you, I don't see me. But I trust that the punishment that was poured out on you will save me from the third thing that I see today, from judgment. Lord, I deserve judgment, but I choose you as my friend and my Savior. Amen. So, is Jesus your friend? We're going to close with a little more Celtic-y kind of a vibe. What a friend we have in Jesus. And then Paul will come up and close us in prayer. Folks, I beg you. I beg you in the name of Jesus. Be reconciled.